Have you listened to the Drew Marshall show before? George Bush is the Antichrist. Honest to you God. Think, you I think George he, Bush is yes. the Antichrist? Yes. Okay, so George Bush is the Antichrist because he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He's fooling people. He's a trickster. Would you vote for George W. Bush? Absolutely. Why? He's the Antichrist. <laughs> I think the guy needs to read his Bible. <laughs> Would you vote for George W. Bush? Absolutely. I hope he's not the Antichrist because I'm going to vote for the wrong guy. Yeah, I hate when that happens. The Drew Marshall Show, right here on Joy 1250. You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talkback program. Well, remember those timeless hits from Tony Orlando and Don, folks? Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, knock three times. Multi-award winning recording artist Tony Orlando has done it all. I mean, he's had success in the studio, success on the television, success in the theater, and it's earned him a well-deserved star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I mean, not bad for a kid from, from New York's infamous Hell's Kitchen. And Tony has played to packed arenas for five presidents and has performed with numerous Hollywood legends, including Jackie Gleason, Jerry Lewis, and all the greats. And, uh, well, you know, Tony, you must be the most famous Greek Rican on the planet. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. <laughs> there aren't too many of us, though, Drew, you know? <laughs> Man, well, look, I appreciate you joining us on the show today. Uh, the first question everybody wants to know is, uh, is is the journey, you know? I mean, how did you go from the doo-wops on the corner in the, in the subways of New York to getting a star in the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame? Well, you know, the Lord has blessed me. I, I've been very, very fortunate. It's uh, It's hard to figure out why, and it's hard to figure out how it all happened, but... All I can tell you is is that it started with a little bit of a dream. I remember seeing Drew. I remember seeing a movie called Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. Oh yeah, one of the best. And I was the only kid in the neighborhood who come home with one wet left foot <laughs> because I was always kicking the puddles after a rain, singing. I'm singing in the rain and making believe. I was twirling around a lamppost, and then I kind of realized. I literally realized at that point in time, and I was just a, a real a mere child thinking, boy, you know what? I want to make movies. I want to be in show business. That that movie is what you know turned the light on. And then, of course, like you say, the doo-wop thing was a big thing in New York subways because the echo was so terrific, and I was a big doo-wop fan and used to go to the Alan Freed and the Murray the K shows as a, as a you know, preteen. And then finally in my teens, I found myself walking the streets of uh, Tin Pan Alley and uh, with a guitar that I knew four chords to. Uh, my, that was my uh, C, A minor, F, G, 7th. So you guys will <laughs> learn the guitar. You know that's the old 50s uh, changes. And I'd walk into an office and play the same songs. I'd either play uh, In the Still of the Night or, um, you know, the old Five Satins tune, or I'd sing La Bamba. And that would be my audition. And uh, when the guys didn't, in the group didn't want to go to the audition, I went by myself and bumped into a guy named Donnie Kirshner, who you know, Drew, hmm. who uh, was the guru of our business in the early 60s. On the sixth floor of uh, building, uh, the address was 1650 Broadway next to the Winter Garden on, on Broadway. Is, there. is that building still there? Not only is it still there, but there's always this wonderful kind of... Com uh, a little competition between the famous Brill Building, right. which was the building that's, that gave birth to so many songwriters and, and, and performers, and 1650, because 1650 was the building that gave us Carol King and Jerry Goffin yeah. and the, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Neil Diamond, and they always claimed that it was the Brill Building that did that. Well, it wasn't. It was the building across the street, 1650, that spawned those guys. I don't think I've ever heard of a fight between buildings before. That's Isn't that a, funny? It sounds like superhero stuff. Yeah, it's or like something. a school alma mater thing, you know. <laughs> the, the, the kids, the kids in the 1650s said, "Oh no, that's our school." And the guys over <laughs> at the no, that's our school. And, and they would battle for hit songs and the right to them, you know. Now, are you still living in uh, in Branson, Tony? I do, sir. I do. I I, I love Branson. I came here in 1993, Drew. To to open a theater here in town, uh, did 400 shows a year from 93 to 98, and then sold it, and went on to Broadway to do Smokey Joe's Cafe, so, um, yeah, I, I love the area, and I love the people. Beautiful. Now, let, let's go into your family a little bit, Tony. Uh, your wife, Francine, how did you and her meet? You really 
want to hear this story. Yeah, yeah. I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, it's kind of a fairy tale story, actually. My my wife, um, I'm 13 years older than my wife. So I'm 62 years old. She's going to hate me for telling you guys you make this subtraction. <laughs> but she's uh, entering. She's coming up on 50. And uh, I met her when she was 14 years old. And I had, and I was at Disneyland working with Dawn. I was just starting out. In fact, we didn't have a yellow ribbon yet. We just had Candida out. It was the first record we had out, and we were working the Tomorrowland stage at Disneyland. And I remember this this um, officer was going kind of like, um, um, I, 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 well, "Get out of here, kids! Move out of here, you guys!" And I said, "Wait a minute, hold it, officer! Wait, 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 wait! That that mother and that father and that little girl that can come in here. That was the only ones there." How, what, what would you like me to? Could you sign my autograph? Little did I know I was signing my future wife's oh. autograph. <laughs> you know, and I signed this autograph, and I go, "Here you go, sweetheart. Thank you very much. Okay, now you be a good girl. Okay, now, okay, bye." <laughs> and I, I go, and uh, the next time I see this mother and and daughter and father and brother was when we had our television shows two, three years later. And I'm standing out at CBS, and I see this family that I recognize from Disneyland. I go, oh, my goodness, look who's here. Hi, how, what's your name again? Oh, yeah, oh, Mrs. Armamino, that's the mom. How are you? Oh, Franny, hi, how are you? Nice to say. Now she's, I don't know, she's like 15, 14, 16, whatever she is. And I give us, here you are, nice to see you. And they'd come to the show religiously every week, Rose Armamino, Franny's mom, and her. And they would come to Vegas. And I'd only see them at the shows. And years went by, and then I didn't see them at all. In 1988, I, I, I bumped into her brother, Sam. He said, I said, oh, how's Franny? My goodness, what's she doing? Is she married? And she said, no, 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 no. She's still in love with you, Tony. Oh, yeah, right. She's still in love with me. Yeah. She still has your pictures. All right. Okay, Sam. Fine. Sure. All of a sudden... She comes up to me and says, would you come to our house for dinner for once? We only see you at the show. Franny says this to me. Yeah. And I said, sure, Fran. And I, it was like I was on the road. So the invitation was like two months away. And old Tony, you know, not being very nice, forgot. Oh, and no. And didn't show up. Oh, no. Yeah. Terrible, right? I needed a good smack for that. Well, it turned out that. I had heard that Franny's um, dad passed away, so I called to give my condolences. And in the middle of conversation, I said, Franny, I realized I didn't even show up for dinner. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> I'd love to see you and your mother. It was Mother's Day. That's coming Sunday. And when I went to their house and I saw Franny, I sat there for six hours looking at her going, now she's a grown woman in her 30s. And I go, boy, oh boy, oh boy. There's a little something going on here. She's so pretty. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And then he, I'm talking to her. The next thing I know, I said, would you like to go to dinner with me? And she went to dinner with me. And six months later, we were married. And I, it was a horse and carriage wedding, like a Cinderella wedding. And she married her prince. And I married the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Brilliant. Brilliant story. <laughs> it, oh, I love that I'll stuff. Four people out no there with way. That. Oh, who cares if they did? I lo- I'm a sap for that stuff. You know, one thing that impresses me in, in uh, just doing a bit of research on you is, is you really do remember so many different fans. Like, let me see if I can just throw one out here. The Oreo Cookie Lady. Well, sure. The Oreo Cookie Lady. That that particular Oreo Cookie Lady. She comes to me with Oreo cookies every every time I go to the show because. And she even gave me an Oreo cookie that was a piece of plastic, like a like made of an Oreo cookie that I still have. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, man. I didn't gain this weight. Uh, <laughs> I, I gained the weight I gained by dipping Oreo cookies. I was just at the telephone with Jerry Lewis, and I said to Jerry on the on the air, I said, "You know, Jerry, you gained your weight on prednisone. I gained mine on pizza." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, man. Folks, we're on the phone with Tony Orlando. Tony, uh, your daughter, Jenny Rose, what's she up to these days? Oh, she's being a 15-year-old, and she's she's just the best. I mean, she is something. Uh, God has blessed me, Drew, with the most wonderful young lady who comes home and quotes scripture to me. Really? Yeah. My, I'm living in Branson, and she goes to a Christian school, grammar school, you know, because she grew up in this school. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, uh, tr- 
into the academy here in, in Branson, Missouri, and she just, you know, she's an amazing young lady being raised the way you always want your kids to be raised. She's a great girl. Really? You're so blessed, man. That is a tremendous... Now, John, what, how old is John? John now is, as a matter of fact, yesterday was his 36th birthday, believe it or not, Drew, and he's living in Los Angeles. He he has his own PR company, works with ball play, baseball players. He has Coco Crisp for the Cleveland Indians and LaDuca of the Mets, and he has uh, Chris Benson, and he has uh, uh, Jason Giambi, and he has a lot of the ball players and Marshall Falk, the football player of the, uh, oh, yeah. of the Rams. And uh, that's what he does, and he's doing great. Tremendous. Well, uh, chronologically here, I guess uh, Francine is your second wife, correct? Yeah, we're married 16, 17 years now. 17 years. It, it really sounds like you're happy. Like, you almost sound giddy. <laughs> well, you know what? I am happy. I mean, look, look. you, you gave me a fantastic introduction, Drew. You, you, gave, you gave a little synopsis of, of really what was it, has been a, a magic carpet ride for a kid like you said, started out in New York City, never saw high school, never went beyond the eighth grade, and and I uh, uh, spent this whole life doing, accomplishing every dream I've ever set out to do. I'm 62 years old. I'm still two two years younger than Paul McCartney, so that means I'm still going good. <laughs> uh, I've walked the streets of Pompeii. The my palate has tasted the foods of 37 different countries. I've I've had the pleasure of working from one end of Canada to the other end of Canada. Just finished a, a show in Vancouver. Worked for the last five presidents of the United States. Have my my star in a Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, I had my own television show that had five number one records. Uh, worked and met with every. Uh, Ball player and 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 superhero I ever had the dream of meeting. Worked with everyone from Jackie Wilson to Jackie Gleason. Um, you know, really, I have no right to complain. I have every right to be giddy. Well, I, I'm glad you're there, and you know, I and think the most beautiful family in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, this this autobiography that came out a little while back, uh, Halfway to Paradise, covers your entire career of, you know, 132 years. <laughs> and and every interview I've read, from Larry King to Entertainment Tonight, everybody wants to talk about the nine months of hell you went through. Yeah. Well, it's understandable, because, you know, because the dark side of somebody's life is the news, is news to people. You know, when you talk about the, the giddy stuff, most people get, eh, they yawn and they move on. They go, eh, but if you talk about the dirt now, oh, yeah. bring up the radio. Yeah. Oh, let's, let's, let's sell the newspapers. And that's just human nature. Sure. You know, that, I understand that. I've never ducked the, the, uh, the questions about my period where there was a nine month period in which I went through a self destructive period. You look, I don't know of a person, Drew, not one person, that has a period in their life they're not proud of. Whether it be a divorce, whether it be a, an experience with a, 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 a drug situation that they might have had, or liquor, or, or bankruptcy, or they did, whatever it is, everybody that walks this earth, if you've gone through a lifetime, you've had your moment of, of, that you're proud of, and you've had your moments in which you're not so proud of. Well, look, I I got to say I'm very appreciative of the fact that you came clean on stuff, you own stuff, you didn't shy away from it. No. I know I know it was a short period. It wasn't like a lifestyle of addictions and in, in women and you know that kind of a thing. But but for the rest of us schmoes out here, it's nice to hear other people own the dirt. You know what I'm saying? I think it's I think it's important that we take on to take the dirt as our own responsibility so that we can help somebody else. You know, I remember uh, and so if anybody doesn't remember what you're, you're talking about, Drew, and that's a long time ago, but in around 1978, 77, uh, I found myself doing, now this is a, a young man at that time myself who never drank, and I still don't. Never smoked never, weed? Never, never smoked weed, never did. You know, tried it once and made me get me a headache and never did it again. <laughs> Hated it. And I was never one to like to being drunk or stoned or out of control. So I was never one for that. 
I was always the guy, I was a goody two-shoes kid that never wanted to make, embarrass my parents or my grandparents who raised me. I, I mean, it was just the way I was. Yeah. And and I found myself at, at um, uh, a period of time in which I was doing cocaine for about nine months of my life. Now, when I say nine months, how do I know that? Because it stopped when I can tell you when it started, and I can tell you when it ended. When it ended was right after Freddie Prinze passed away. Hmm. So I knew basically how long I had been dabbling with or experimenting with drugs. And I think the reason I did it, in retrospect, and this is not even in that book, but I've thought about it again. I think it was a peer group thing. Sure. No differently than you do when you're in your teens. But, you know, I didn't have a teen. So I, my teens, at 16, I was on the road doing doing some work, you know, as a performer. But my my early teens, from the from the time I was, you know, 10 years old, 9 years old, till the time I was six, 16 years old, I was in the house taking care of my sister who had cerebral palsy. She was mentally retarded. And that was my job, was to help my mom take care of my sister, Rhonda. Who was the greatest piston in the engine that I that I that I run on to this day? She was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in terms of teaching me the values of simplicity in life, because she couldn't even scratch her own itch. Mm. So I had a real respect for people who can. But in that year, I was like falling into this you know rock and roll. You know, I was this this always described in the press as the bubblegum guy and. You know the corny, corny, corny guy, and the, 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 with the knock three times, and I wanted to be bad. I wanted to be real bad. It, this this reminds me of Pat Boone putting on leathers and coming out yeah, with yeah, Alice Cooper. Similar, it's similar <laughs> to that. It's very similar to that. And I and I wanted to be bad for you. And so I was hanging with Freddie and and Richard Pryor, and and if we found ourselves doing things we shouldn't have been doing. And in the seventies, if you look at shows like Behind the Music on VH1. The seventies was 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 a, a period in which everybody was doing drugs, and in the in the late sixties, and it was uh, you weren't in show business unless you were. You weren't invited to the parties. You weren't you weren't considered uh, on the A list. You you, and so I I I bent to that stupid pressure that you bent to when you're in your teenage years or when you're a kid. Not when you're in your late twenties and thirties. You don't do that. It's grown man. Well, you, you do if the pressure is as hot as it was on you, though. Yeah, I mean, in the scene you're in, and it was, it really was. And I found myself going through this, and 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 uh, there I was. And when Freddie died, and you talk about a wake up call, and I realized uh, that the payment that one pays if you're going if if drugs is your dining room, the bill at the end of that dinner is going to be awesome. Because you're going to end up paying for your marriage, which my first marriage was literally crushed by that period. Simple nine months. You know? Uh, my career, I never recouped again. My career was never really recouped in terms of the television career. That was spoiled and done with, although the audiences have been very forgiving to me through the years. But, you know, <clears throat> it, it, there was a black mark. I mean, I, I let a lot of parents down. There are a lot of parents out there whose kids used to watch that show. It was not a good example to set for them. Um, all of that stuff happened in a nine-month period, Drew. And at the end of the um, experience, is um, I was fortunate enough to, you know, put my brakes on and and thank God I have a a great upbringing from a great family. But back in that day, I mean there. There was no Betty Ford clinics, right? So, so if I understand things right, Tony, you signed yourself into a psych ward. Um, what I did do was, I was sitting with my family, and I said, "Look, I I know that there's something here. I've got to do something to to help myself. What should I do?" And my, the um, unanimously from family and friends, they told me I should go and check into a hospital. Well, believe it or not, in '77, there was no real rehab centers. Right. It's hard to believe, but there really wasn't any. And there wasn't even a Betty Ford Center. It just was beginning. And I'll bring Betty Ford into this and tell you why I know that to be true, too, because she was a great help to me and is, and always has been a good friend to me, the, the, both of them, uh, the president and Mrs. Ford. They were very supportive to me, Drew. And 
taught me a great lesson. But I went into uh, a place called Payne Whitney in New York City and went in for uh, just uh, actually it was a three day experience. You can only go, you know, you can you can't stay. You check in. It's at the lawyers. You got to stay seventy two hours. What well, was the longest seventy two hours I ever spent in my life? <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was a, it was it was one flew over this cuckoo next with a with a famous person on the floor, and it was maddening. I mean, it was scary. It was frightening. I saw people that were very ill there, mm. and realized that I wasn't mentally ill. I was in the experience. I was someone who was had a, had a drug problem that I had to overcome, and and when I came out of there. Uh, uh, Frank Sinatra and the son of sounds like I'm, 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 I'm dropping names here, but he was so good to me. And I came out. He said, "You know, you take my apartment at the Waldorf and you recuperate," and that's what I did. I went to his place and stayed there and recuperated for about a month. And Mrs. Ford said to me, "What you've got to do, Tony, is you've got to come out and you've got to tell the people your story, so that some other young performer or young person doesn't go." down the same road sure because you know <clears throat> she herself did that she went public with prescription drugs if you remember yeah sure and and created the betty ford center that's cured and helped millions i mean thousands of people have come out of there uh, you know their lives have been changed and as my mine was but my my main change um came from uh uh you know just going back to the basics and Going back and, and you know leaning on the Lord and mm. and my family and and just straightening myself up and going back to the basic rules that I was brought up to and I'm fine I was fine I had no problem and moved on with my career and here we are Drew. Well, the psych ward. I mean, uh, just personally relating to this. When I was a teenager, I tried to commit suicide, and that's one of the areas they send you to. And well, and, you know, and, then. and oh, I remember being you know oh, lo- yeah. looking at the people around there going, okay, hold on a second here. I'm not fitting in this deal. Exactly. And this is this is a get your act together or you will be back here. Exactly. And you know what really was very stark to me? The the room they had me in overlooked the East Side Drive, Drew. Mm. And for you, you you know you've been in it's like being in jail. Yeah. I mean you're in you're in you're in paper slippers and a paper Paper oh, I know. You know, the the only thing that kept me sane while I was in the psych ward was I entertained the troops by imitating the doctors and staff. I did the same thing. <laughs> I, Drew, I swear to you, I did the same thing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I did exactly that. You know why you did it? So you wouldn't get killed in there. Oh, yeah. Your common sense told you, oh, boy, <laughs> I better start tap dancing here. <laughs> I know, I know. And so I looked out. And I see, I hear the, the the traffic below me in this window that I had right below me in the East Side Drive, and I hear bam, boom, and it was obviously a, like a, a a car car crash. So I go over to the window and I look out and I see these two guys get out of the car. It was like a bumper, you know, a, a bumper that I crash. Yeah, nothing severe. And they're cursing and they're now punching each other and kicking each other. And hitting each other and going, and I'm going, I'm looking down, I'm going, oh, my God. And and they've got me in here? <laughs> and those two guys are free driving on the freeway? Hey, it's New York. Well, I mean, come and on. And that's one guy kicking the other guy in the head? There's nothing wrong with me, Tony. Come on. Get out of here. Did you did you did you slink into a bit of depression? I mean, your your wife has had it with you. The woman you had an affair with dumped you. You know, you see your career kind of falling apart around you. There must have been a depression attached with all of this. Well, sure there was. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to, of course. But the depression was also the place where I was able to, believe it or not, take stock of what was going on. Right. And take a real good look at what I had to do. And while I was under the covers, feeling sorry for myself, um, the truth is, I decided to make better for my life, and and uh, and took took the steps forward to to t- the, and the key is what you said earlier is to take responsibility for the dirt, yeah, and not blame somebody else or to blame the blame the the wife or blame the 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 the, 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 the drugs or blame that's on you, man. 
Well, here's here's a quote from you, Tony Orlando. I hate reading stories where people put the blame on everyone but themselves. I thank God for the good blessings he's given me. But the fact of the matter is that I've had my choices. I wanted to be on the up and up so that when my kids read the book, they can say, okay, Dad, at least you told the truth. That's right. That's right. The, the, the reason I wrote that book was because I didn't want to hear at all um, uh you know, my my children being told this or told that and that they didn't know the truth. No, no, my dad told the truth. Yeah. He told us and he told the world and there's no questions. And look, my children, God bless them. I hope that when they face their crisis that they're able to, to confront it and look at themselves in the mirror and say, look, you take responsibility for what you do, hmm. both the good and the bad. You know? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, I could sit here and go, oh, yeah, this person helped me get there, and that person helped me get there. And they did. I had a lot of help from a lot of people. But if I didn't take the strut, and I didn't stand up and go after the dream, it would have never happened. If I didn't work hard, it would have never happened. The same goes for the downside. If I was so stupid, and I wasn't so, you know, at that point, so self-destructive and so blind to what was the right thing to do, I could blame, uh, you know, my friend Freddie or my friend Richard or my friend Bill or my friend Joe or whatever. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, do you think Richard Pryor did have a kind of a negative influence on you as far as the no, drugs? No, I think he. I think the, the time I had a negative that that period of time was having a negative negative influence on all of us. Right. 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 Be honest with you, Richard yeah. was the kindest. You never met Drew. You couldn't meet in a lifetime a kinder person than Richard Pryor. It's amazing. You watch the way he had this perspective on life, and you could see the anger in him sometimes, even in his comedy, as you know. Sure. Because that's how brilliant he was. But, you know, think about it. Think about what his comedy was. It was taking responsibility. Hmm. And even though he was messed up, like we all were at that point in time, that's one of the nicest human beings I ever met in this lifetime. He was a very special man. Folks, we are on the phone with Tony Orlando. And Tony, which was harder for you to own in this whole journey of yours? The role you played in the failure of your first marriage, the old drug habit, or not being the best dad you could have been? Which was harder for you to own? I wasn't a very, I wasn't a good dad to my, my adopted son, Kenny, from my first marriage. Okay. Where I wasn't a good dad there was, I wasn't home. Right. And I didn't put priority. Remember something? When I married Elaine, I was a kid, you know. Um, literally, I'm out. On my first marriage, I was 20 years old. Yeah. She had a six-year-old son. Wow. So this is before that Tony Orlando and Dawn. This is before that all that happened. And I and I raised my son. So you married a single mom at 20. Like you were 20 years old and you right. married a single mom. Correct. What were you thinking? You know something I, you know, I was thinking, here's what I was thinking. What I was thinking was I found uh, a mother figure. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yep. And I wanted to be in the world, but I wasn't strong enough or grown up enough to be, uh, uh, a I wasn't able, let me put it this way, I, I really wasn't able to, to go out and live the world alone, so I found a mama. Yeah. Okay, basically, I think that's what happened. I hate to sound like I'm playing a psychiatrist here, but that's the only thing I can think of. It's a little Dr. Phil moment here. It was, you know, and, <laughs> and Elaine was a great lady, you know, and still is a great lady. And and the marriage should have never taken place, and I and I was married to her for 18 years. Well, that, that's some good stickability. You know, and I was not a, 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 a good, very good parent to Kenny because, my goodness, I was trying to find a, a place in life. And he suffered by it. But as I look uh, around and I see what bad parenting is, I really wasn't a bad parent. No. I was just one who wasn't being able to be there for him at that time sure. in my life. Sure. And uh, as, I grew, as I grew older, hey, listen, I was too good a brother not to be a good parent. <laughs> my, my sister, my sister Rhonda, was in my arms every single night, and she'd sleep in my show, on my chest, her head on my shoulder, me in a rocking chair, for my entire childhood, I mean, literally from my 11-year-old till I was 16 years old. And when my sister had an itch, when I, you know you know, when you have a baby, you can tell the difference between their hunger cry, their tired cry, right. and, 
you know, they're just annoyed by something. Cry, cries can tell you has, has a different personality. Well, when my sister would get the itch cry, I'd panic because that would mean I would have to literally search for that itch. And when I would find it, the look and the sound of my sister's face, who was no no older than an eight month old baby in terms of her IQ, drew mm. up until she died at 21. She was that retarded. She was literally eight months old. When I would find that itch and I would scratch it, the sound of, oh, oh, gave me such a respect for being able to scratch my own itch mm. that she was the greatest teacher I ever had. And so parenting, she taught me. Um, um, sensitivity, she taught me. Respect for simplicity, she taught me. Um, having a child and having a normal child, she taught me very young at what the value of that was. I think I probably related to my stepson, Kenny, when I married Elaine. Um, I, I probably related to the fact that, you know, he came from a broken home. I came from a broken My mother and father were divorced. So maybe I was coming to that marriage with Elaine, trying to be the saving father in that situation. Sure. I think that was a, a, um, very much part of me trying to come in and be a good dad there, too, even though I wasn't one. Um, and I wasn't there for him, not because I wasn't a good-feeling person. I was never a bad person to Kenny. I just was on the road, yeah. you know, yeah. trying to build a career. So <clears throat> all I can tell you is, is that I, I have had this experience with my sister that has taught me so much about the simple things in life. In, in fact, Drew, that itch story I just gave you is very much even a part of my show. When I ask an audience to clap their hands and stomp their feet and sing along, that's not, to me, it's like I'm really saying to them, hey, look, you're able to do this simple little thing. No matter how sophisticated or, you know you think you might be, Come on, scratch your own itch and take a sigh and enjoy it. Clap yeah. your hands and stomp your feet and sing along in life. We are on the phone with Tony Orlando. Tony, I'd like to ask these sorts of cheesy interview questions. Can you just describe, like in one word, the following people? You ready? One I'll, word. I'll do my best. David Letterman. Hysterical. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, man. All the time. He's always on, is he? He's his switch is always he, David Letterman has a mind unlike most comedians I've ever known because David Letterman walks into a room and says in a word one word he'll I'll give you an example I walk on the show he walks up to me says I go hi David remember Cleveland <laughs> I go what the heck's he talking about but I'm think comes again he goes off on Cleveland because we were on the road together. You know, David used to open for me. Right. Telling me stories about Cleveland that I long forgot. <laughs> and he could spend an hour. This is 25 years later. And he's talking about Cleveland. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm going, no. And, he, and, he, and all that stuff that you see, David, all that craziness he does with Paul, yeah. that's David Letterman. Really? Yeah. Tremendous. Okay, next one. Bob Hope. Complete. Really? Yeah. He was a complete person. Bob was a complete man. He was, um, a, he, he com when he did comedy, it was complete. It was completed to its fullest. When he did, uh, worked with veterans, it was completed to its fullest. When he, as a husband, he was a complete husband. Um, as a businessman, he was a complete man. As a friend, he was a complete friend. Was he a bit of a perfectionist then? Yes. Consummate professional, perfectionist. Total. Yeah. Barry Manilow. Skinny. Skinny. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, then. Barry Manilow, skinny. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess his nose makes up for it, then. Uh, next one, Jackie Gleason. Fat. Fat. Yeah. <laughs> we knew where that was going to go. You set that one up for yeah. pretty good point. Uh, Jackie Gleason was tough. 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 Like grumpy, angry, nasty tough? 
Um, Krenby could be. Um, uh, he was a, without a. Can I tell you a quick story about Jackie? Sure. Yeah, yeah. When I had Jackie on my guest, as a guest on my TV show, Jack was the first guest I had on the show, and he came on the show, and I was nervous. And, and he sat down, and he said. Um, a nasty thing to the girls. And I don't want to say it on the air. No, no. And it was not nice. Yeah. And he said it. He didn't think he they could hear him. And so he said, "Who are these nasty words to the girls?" And this amateur night in Dixie, which he was referring to me. I didn't mind the amateur night in Dixie because he was right. I was an amateur. I was just starting out hmm. compared to him. You but, know, I, I'd never done a television show before. But don't mess with the girls. But don't. Ever, ever mess with the girls. Mm. And that was just always my position with them. First of all, they were women, and they were black women. And, you know, when I started this group, the Tony Lando and Dawn, I had a, there were a lot of confrontations about that part of them. You know, they, they were black women. I mean, there were people who thought, you know, prejudiced people in the south of the United States who were not really kind to me in Florida when we first didn't want to beat me up because I was with two black women. So I was very protective of them. And I walked up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Gleason, I said, you really, um, first of all, say hello to your amateur night in Dixie. Now, let me just tell the audience and you, I would not have handled this this way. Now, what I did then was a, uh, was a different, per, a younger person, different sure. guy. Sure. I would have been much more diplomatic than I was that day. And I insisted he apologize to the girls. Well, he goes, I'm out of here, pal. <laughs> and up out of the seat he goes, and he's gone, Drew. Fred Silverman, who's the head of CBS, comes running to my dressing room. What are you doing? What are you crazy? Jackie Gleason left the show. What did you say to him? Oh, my God. You know, Tony, for God's sake, this is your television career, and we're paying him $25,000. And at that time, that was a lot of money. Sure. For the show to come and do the show, he doesn't do this. And what are you doing? I said, look. What he said to the girls was a racial slur. And I don't care if I ever do a show, I'm not going to accept that from anybody. Good for you. And he said, look, promise me something. We'll discuss this with him after the show is over. I'm going to get him back on. You just promise me you'll put the key in your mouth and turn it in quiet. <laughs> I said, all right, Mr. Silverman. I said, please. I said, I'm sorry. I just didn't think that was right, and, and it's going to take a lot for me to do, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I go to the girls, I tell them the same, and we go do the show. Well, we had confrontation after confrontation. Like one moment, he was, I had a song to sing with him, I'll teach you everything I know. He, he sings that part. I go, mm, even how sweet it is, I'll teach you everything I know. And in the middle, he had said to me before the show, no ad-libbing. Well, he kept fluffing the line. And he kept stopping the tape. Finally, I had my fill, and I said, Tape is rolling, oh, great one. <laughs> and he looked at me, Drew, like, I'm going to kill this kid. And I Tape is rolling. What's the matter? The great one can't add live his way through this. Come on, let's get through this, old Jackie. And now the next scene. We do a thing called, remember the thing, Old Grasshopper? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, he comes up to me, and he goes, Oh, Grasshopper, and he takes both hands, and he clasps them together, and he comes down on my head with a shot that would have nailed the nail into the wall. Okay? And my eyes were now spitting from the shot that he gave me. So now Nancy Walker was on the show. You remember Nancy Walker? Uh, refresh me. Okay. Well, Nancy Walker was a wonderful uh, uh, character actress who was on a lot of television shows then, and she comes on and she says, Don't you worry. I'll take care of Jackie for you, Tony. <laughs> uh, he, he, he caused me a problem in 1949 in a play on Broadway, and I haven't forgotten it since. I said, Please, don't do anything wrong. Now, Nancy, in that same scene, Oh, Grasshopper, takes her hands clasps them together, and comes down on Jackie. And his eyes now are spinning around in circles. <laughs> now, Freddie Silverman comes walking into the dressing room. What's going on? Will you stop it? I said, Mr. Silverman, I 
didn't do anything. He came on the set. He hit me in the head. He said, well, what's the business about the ad-libbing? I said, well, I'm sorry about that. It just slipped out. <laughs> so now comes the end of the show. And Jackie had this guy that would walk around with him, Drew, and his job was the following. When Jackie, Jackie would snap his fingers, out would come a cigarette pack. Oh, yeah. Boom. And he'd hand Jackie the cigarette. That was his job, and then he'd light it. <laughs> that was his job. It was it. Right. So the show is coming to an end. We're looking at the audience, and I knew it was a non-smoking audience, and now I had my fill of Jackie Gleason. And he goes to light a cigarette, and I go, Oh, no, this is a non-smoking audience. Right, audience? We can't smoke in here. If we can't smoke, he can't smoke. And the audience goes, yeah, Mr. Gleason. <laughs> now he's looking at me, and there's smoke coming out of his nose, and there's fire coming from his tongue. And he is a, I know he looks like he's going to kill me. The show's over. There's now there's a happy ending to this, Drew. He's saying, hang in there with me. <laughs> You're killing comes, me with this. Comes to, the end of, comes to the end of the show. There's a knock on my dressing room door. Yeah. It's the guy with the cigarettes. <laughs> Mr. Gleason would like to talk to you, Mr. Orlando. Oh, God. Okay. I go walking in, and I see Jackie standing there with his glass. I could still hear the tinkling to this day of the ice cubes that he was stirring with his back to me. And he says, sit down, pal. And he's stirring, and he's plinking, and he's stirring, and he's, he says, You see the book on the coffee table? Yes, Mr. Gleason. That's your script, is it not? I said, Yes, it is, sir. He said, Open it to the first page. And by the way, keep it. I said, Yes, Mr. Gleason. I open it up, and it says, Dear Tony, I apologize, Jackie Gleason. Whoa. Do you still have that? I do. And Jackie, I look up and I go, oh, Mr. Gleason, thank you. He says, no problem. I'll be calling you on tape days. <laughs> and for four straight years, in my makeup room, the day of taping, the phone would ring and he would say, and get on the phone and go, are you ready today? <laughs> I saw the show last week. You blew the line. He would, he would do things. He called me every single week and ended up being my bestest friend. Really? Yeah. And, eventually, and apologize to the girls, too. What an amazing... My mouth is dry. <laughs> what an amazing story. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm sorry for the No, no, no. I'm uh, Hello. You know, I'm in the middle of it. My palms are sweating. My mouth is dry. What am I going to say? Shut up? My apologies. My goodness. Jerry Lewis, one word. The greatest. He is the greatest. He is the Muhammad Ali of show business. Hmm. Period. He's done more for humankind than any one man I know. He seems like he's um, he's softened as the years have gone by. Jerry can be both. He can be crass. He can be, he can be smart, alecky. He can be wonderful. He can be kind. He can be. Here, there's a guy who's everything. And what you see is what you get. But let me tell you what. Nobody I know in my lifetime, and I've known Jerry thirty years. Nobody that I've ever more than thirty years. I've never known a man who is truer to his word than Jerry Lewis. I have never in my life seen anybody care about and be that focused about one thing as he is with muscular dystrophy. Mm. It's not been for a career move. It's been for all the good things that people do for charity. Mm. He has put his life on the line for this. He has made billions of dollars. He has changed the life of so many people. He has given hope to so many people. He is the single greatest person in show business that ever lived, period. Enough said. Folks, we are on the phone with Tony Orlando, and uh, he is sharing with us absolute gems. And Tony, if you could just take us back to the night of January 28, 1977. Freddie was 22. You were 10 years older than your friend. And from, from my understanding, you actually watched him die. Well, you know, it's a tough... I've never really discussed this. You know, he has a son who, who uh, wasn't there for this. His son was a year old. His son had his one-year-old birthday party at my home. Oh, 
And there was only four people in the room at UCLA when Freddie passed. And that was his mother, his wife, my then wife, Elaine, and myself. And all I know is that um, that was the toughest thing I never have at that time have ever had happened to me. Um, I never saw anybody pass prior to that. And to see this young person who was very much... You know, we, we had a thing, Freddie and I, Hungarian, Greek-Greek Productions. We were going to start a company. Now, if you write that down, you know how long that would be on a television screen? <laughs> <laughs> that was Freddie's idea. The whole Hungarian, Greek-Greek thing came from him. But to see this young 22-year-old, when they pull the plug on him, go completely ass gray, it was the most powerful moment to lose a friend that was only a friend of mine for two years but he was only in the show business for two years two or three years that was it hmm. it was a very short run but like the country lost a funny wonderful genius I lost a funny wonderful friend and it had great impact on me and still does to this day burned in oh my goodness like you can't believe I mean the last pair of lips to kisses is mine so, enough said. The papers, the articles, the interviews over the years have gone back and forth with accidental or suicide. Does it really matter? No. No. By the way, one thing about Freddie I want to share with you before we go on. Sure. I must compliment Kathy. Oh, what a good job she's done as a mom. Are you kidding me? Boy, oh boy. And let me tell you what she did, including... Tony Orlando. She got as far away from everybody that knew Freddie as possible. Smart. She went to Albuquerque and raised her son in a natural place with an actually in a natural way. That lady, if there's anybody that really came out of that whole thing, in my opinion, smelling like the rose that she is, is Kathy Prince. Because look at this young man. My God, would Freddie have been proud of him? Mm. Just the way he handles himself. The, the look at him. He's just, you can see he loves life. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got a beautiful uh, uh, um, career set. And he handles the questions about Freddie like, unlike anybody I've ever seen. Because, you know, after all, he's got his own career. Yeah. And every time that poor kid sits down, somebody's got to go, let's it, talk about your father. The shadow. Yeah, you know, it's not fair. No. But, uh, I, I took you away from No, that. no, I, I agree with you. Well done, Kathy. I think it was a brilliant parenting move. Oh, my goodness. Amazing, amazing woman. Uh, amazing lady. Um, then, you know, that night that Freddie passed at UCLA, I'll never forget her yelling out at the top of her lungs. I've never told this in an interview at UCLA. And the doctors are surrounding Freddie because, obviously, it was time to go. And she yelled out, Freddie, don't, don't, I'll take you home like you are. I'll change your diapers. Hmm. And ran to that man, and she really loved him and showed it by the way she she raised that boy. She's a great lady. When was the last time you spoke with Kathy? Long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of us really want to relive that too much. In fact, this interview that I'm doing with you is the first time I've even divulged as much as I do. Normally, I keep my mouth shut about it because sometimes, you know, um, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes you talk about things, and by the time they get back to somebody else, the story's changed. Exactly. And so I've, I've tried to avoid talking about it as much as I could, but just let everybody know that this was a great, young man who had an amazing future and was a great loss to us all. That's a, you know, it's a sad thing what happened with yeah. Fred. Enough said. Thelma Hawkins. Uh, uh, Thelma Hawkins, the longest running sitcom actress in the history of television. I'm proud of her. She's gone on to, uh, let's see, she went from our show to Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks hmm. to Give Me a Break to um, uh, Family Matters. To a show, I don't know if the show uh, aired in, in, in on a UPN. There's a show called Half and Half. I don't know if it aired in Canada, but it aired here for five years. And now she's about to do a new sitcom. So she's the longest running sitcom actress in the history of television. Great girl. And Joyce Vincent Wilson. She's still singing with her sister. 
still singing with his sister, doing doing the uh, G- doing the Jesus tunes. That's right, doing gospel. Beautiful. Which is what her whole, you know, love was anyway, and that's all what she's always loved to do. And by the way, she was the singer of the group. Yeah. Man, oh man, oh man, what a voice she had. And Telma, Telma would agree with that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Although Telma, you know, Telma's been on so many hit records. I don't know if you know that. But it was Telma who said, shut your mouth to Isaac Hayes on Shaft. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, buddy, that is some trivia I'm going to hold on to forever. Yeah, she was the one that went, when he said John Shaft, he said, bad mother, shut your mouth. That was her. I'm going yeah. to win a lot of money on that little bit of information. <laughs> sure was. Yellow Ribbon, which has been covered more than 2,000 times. Have you heard any versions that have just made you cringe? The William Hung version, I think. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter, Drew, my daughter come running in. Daddy, Dad, look at this. William Hung sung your song. I said, I'm moving out. (laughs) I don't want to hear it. I'm moving out. You know something? Actually, it was a very cute version. He did a nice job. He was a sweetheart. Yeah, he was a sweetheart to do it. And I hear he he loves the song. He actually did a very good job on it, but... You know, there haven't been too many records of that song. You can't really, that that's a song you can't, I heard the Sinatra record, and the first time I heard the Don Costa arrangement, I said, boy, I wish I could have cut it that way. Really? Yeah. How about Young MC? Oh, the Young MC. Have you ever heard that record, Drew? No. There's a guy named Joel Diamond who produced that record. And what I'm talking about for those at home listening to the show is there was an actual rap version of Yellow Ribbon, believe it or not. And I'm going to send it to you, Drew, so that you can have it for your trivia, because no radio station in, in the world has it. We've been hiding it. But I'm going to send it to you just to prove it really happened. Beautiful. Thank you. MC, uh, I mean, Young MC put yep. it out, yep. and Young MC did a phenomenal job in in the rap part of it. And it's actually a really cool record, but I never would have thought I'd hear Yellow Ribbon done as a rap record. <laughs> this is the same guy that said, don't just stand there, bust a move. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Embarrassing moments, and, and, we'll, and we'll just get into the God stuff, and I'll leave you alone. But one time I preached uh, two services back-to-back when I was a pastor in Australia up in the Blue Mountains. Right. And both services I had my fly open. Right. Anything like that happened to you? I did on American Bandstand. <laughs> on television. <laughs> and Dick sent me, a, Dick Clark gave me a note. And I never heard, I didn't know what this expression meant. Maybe you don't either. Maybe you never heard of it. You ever hear that your drugstore is open? No, never heard that one. He hands me a paper. <laughs> and, and, it, and it says, Tony, your drugstore is open. And I'm thinking, my drugstore is open? I'm 16 years old. I said, I'm not, maybe they, I don't know what he's talking about. And Dick is trying to give me, you know how you, he's looking with his eye, and he's like like pointing downward yeah. with yeah. his eye, like yeah. winking, like the, the part of his eye the camera don't get. He's going, yeah, uh, uh, you know. Well, in live television, let me tell you something, boy. The America got to know me up close and personal. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> so uh, there I was. There I was. You Like you too, right? Well, yeah, I didn't. The thing that saved me was the Holy Bible. By the end of the second, <laughs> the end of the second service, I grabbed the big book and uh, kind of oh, that's funny. held it down in front of me. You know, that's funny. Hiding behind God's word in more yeah. ways than one. <laughs> All right, speaking of God stuff, your father was a Greek Orthodox Christian, right. and here's a quote: "He's the only Christian that I know of who's been buried in a Jewish cemetery in Fort Lauderdale, true, where both the cross and the Star of David are on his headstone." That's absolutely a fact of life. That's some serious ecumenical stuff happening there. It absolutely is, and I'm very proud of that. Because, you know, my father spoke perfect Yiddish. My father loved, he loved, um, you know, he's from the, he was a furrier. He's from the, the, they called him Label. Label in Yiddish means Leo Louis. So I never heard people call him Leo. I only heard him call him Label all my life. Label. So I grew up, when I finally became an adult, you know, I, I started calling him Label. And when he was a good boy, I called him Labelinski. And he was a very good boy, I'd say Labela. <laughs> so I'd get on the phone and say, Labelinski, what are you doing? You know, or I'd say, Labela, you being a good boy? You know, so Labels, this Yiddish thing was very much a part of my father's life. He loved Jewishness. He loved the Jewish people. He loved the Jewish religion. He loved that 
Christ was a Jew. He 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 took his religion from the Old Testament to the New Testament seriously. Hmm. So when he met his wife of forty years was a Jewish girl Abby from Brooklyn. She was married forty years to him. Was and still is one of my dearest, sweetest friends in the world. Her my, her son David, my brother David, is. Um, in, in the band, in our band, he plays keyboards for us. And so we're very tight, and it's a tribute to my father. But you see, so when my, my brother, believe it or not, was um, the bar mitzvah, they gave my father an aliyah, hmm. which is an honor yep. by the rabbi. Well, at his funeral, there was the rabbi and the Greek Orthodox priest both together giving the eulogy for my father. Wow. And if there was ever a more powerful religious moment than that, I don't know of one. And, you know, they broke they broke a major thing, rule there, you know, yeah. to put that headstone and see the cross in a Jewish cemetery next to the Star of David. I wish that would happen in the Middle East right now. Oh, tell me about it. Here's another quote from Tony Orlando. What Carmen has taught me is that gifts gather the crowd, and he does that. His gift gathers the crowd, whether it be the 70,000 people at Texas Stadium or the millions that see him on television. But when he delivers the mail, he delivers it overnight, on time. And the letter is always delivered clearly. And that's the way I would like to live my life. That's the ministering that my buddy has done to me. If I could live the rest of my life doing what Carmen does naturally every day of his life and what he's been called to do, if I could be his roadie, I'd be a happy camper. It's true. As long as I know the word of the Lord gets out. I've seen him change lives. I've seen Carmen in New Orleans on Mardi Gras Day give a concert for Christ. And I've seen young people come to Carmen because they relate to him big time. And I've seen them not walk the walk of drugs, but walk the walk for the Lord. He is an amazing... He's, he doesn't even realize... Um, the effect he's had on the young people. You know, when you ask Carmen, I've used this line for myself, but I've stole it from him. But when you ask Carmen, Carmen, you know, what you do, he says, no, I'm just a mailman. I just deliver the letter. <laughs> and I got it. He's not the preachy type that comes on on you and, 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 and says that he, you know, he's, you know, he, he's like one of the, one of, one of everybody. I mean, he, you know that Carmen probably has, you know, had his, his day with with sin too, you know. It's not sure. like you look at him and go, "Oh, this guy is the Pope or the more per perfect uh, a preacher or reverend type." This guy's lived a life, and so he has a perspective of getting through it that you know is real. And not only that, but he's a brilliant songwriter and brilliant writer, and he and he really is a he doesn't realize. Carmen has no idea. Carmen's one of my best friends, and he doesn't realize how much he can really do in this world for the Lord. You know, there's a synonymous thing happening with, with uh, Tony Orlando in Vegas. Is there a resistance to Jesus stuff in Vegas, do you think? I think so. Uh, on the other hand, i got to compliment Vegas in this respect. When I went in to do my, my Christmas show, Santa and Me at the Orleans, I let them know in front that it was a show about the, 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 about the true meaning of the season. And you know what? They didn't. They didn't hesitate. I thought they were going to really balk on me, and they didn't. And I was surprised. And so I go on. I said, "Well, wait till they see it. They're definitely, they're definitely going to balk then." And we played it for three three years in a row. The show called Santa and Me, which is a musical based on not having a nativity in my house and basically Santa coming and scolding me for it. Yeah. Basically, that's the idea of the show. And. When he when he when he finally goes to his little red bag, he pulls out a nativity scene and gives it to me and says, "Remember, put it where everyone can see it." That's basically the idea of the show, with music and comedy and fun. You know, a play, hmm. and we played it to sold out houses. You know, three years in a row. You know, the reason why they didn't have us back, it wasn't even for that reason. It was listen to this. Listen to the thinking. Sometimes in Vegas, <laughs> we were bringing in children. The show was attracting families. Families with children don't play, don't gamble. No, they don't let loose their change. 
And that was why we never went back after three years. It had nothing to do with the religious aspect of it at all. As a matter of fact, the reviewer, who is Jewish in the local paper in Vegas, said, that play had this Jewish boy crying. <laughs> I loved it. But if you ask me in general, do I think that that, that is compatible with I wish it was because the town needs it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if any town does, it, it certainly is uh, is Vegas. It's a great city, but it really, you know, you know the whole the whole thing about what stays here does, you know, I don't know. I have trouble with that. Well, sure. Well, uh, it, you know, people hear the name Tony Orlando, and I know that many people I've spoken to when I said, "Hey, Tony's coming on our show," you know, people say, "Oh, I didn't know he was, uh, you know, a genuine follower of Christ, a, a Christian, a born, you know, whatever labels they want to put on you." Yeah. How did you go from orthodoxy? into into sort of this uh, genuine relationship with Christ thing, you know? There must have been a transition there. Well, you know, um, I was raised Catholic, actually, and 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 my father and my mother <clears throat> was, um, without a doubt, uh, uh, so my father's Greek Orthodox, my mother's Catholic. You know, I, my grandmother was a very, very strong Latina Catholic, my mamita, you know, from Puerto Rico, mm. on my Spanish side. So the love of Christ was in the house big time, all the time. You know, that was not a difficult thing to make that transition, really. It's just that I I didn't hear the word as much growing up. Right. And when I got to the word and when I got to scripture and when I started hearing what was being said by the Lord himself, without symbolism, but pure language, um... Right after that experience with Freddie, um, it's what saved my life. Hmm. So, well, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you saw it. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, the risk of sounding like a cheesy Christian bumper sticker. I'm glad you, I'm glad you saw the light. I'm glad the word became real in your life. You know? You know, let me tell you about what cheesy means to me. Cheesy means to me the very truth of something. You know, it's like the word cliche. They become cliche because there's truth to this matter, and they keep become so repetitive that they become, quote-unquote, cliche. Mm. The reason they become cheesy is because they're filled with feeling. And unfortunately, people have a hard time with feelings. And so they, they cop out by saying it's cheesy. Cheesy's good. Cheese is a good way to spread on your cracker. <laughs> You're tremendous. You're just like... <laughs> I want you to tell us about your experience on October 13th, a few years ago, when you went to uh, David Whippleson's uh, Times Square Church in New York City. Oh, I went with Dan Isaacson. How did you know about this? I, I got connections. Drew... <laughs> You're frightening. My <laughs> goodness, how did you know about that? I went to I went to um, to his church at Times Square with Dan Isaacson. Now Dan Isaacson is a trainer, a buddy of mine who trains Johnny Depp and the, and uh, and Tom Hanks and and uh, Tony Orlando at the time trying to get me skinny and and uh, I'm, I'm his only failure. <laughs> and but he's a very religious. I mean, he's the same guy. Do you remember the Jane Fonda tapes? Sure. Well, the guy that was working out with her in those tapes is Dan Isaacson. Oh, there was a guy in those tapes? Yeah, the guy that you missed on those tapes was him. Got it. And he is a very strong Christian, very strong. And so Dan says, you got to come to this church. You're not going to believe it. So I go in, and I walk in, and I was so moved. First of all, you see everybody in there from some guy who lives on Park Avenue to the homeless. I mean, it's unbelievable. Sounds like heaven. I mean it. It's, it's like Yeah, it's like heaven. And, you walk, and now they had this group, this gospel. You know what those gospel singers can do to you. They rip your soul. And they were just nailing it. And I walked in there, and I just went to my knees. And I I put my hand. I started, I started talking in tongues. I mean, I was, I was completely enveloped by the Holy Spirit. It was one of the most beautiful, beautiful moments of my whole life. You should come with me, Drew. Yeah, Kathy Lee's tried tried to get me to come down to her brother's church in New York. Now, there's a great lady. She talks so highly of you. Well, let me tell you about her. Uh, thank you. I, thank you. And I feel the same way about her. I don't see her enough. But, you know, I thought she got unfairly wrapped by a lot of people in, 
late night TV and stuff like that with jokes about Kathleen. That's one of the most sweetheart people yeah. that you'll ever want to know in this life. And strong, unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable the kind of strength that that, that lady has, the kindness in her heart. She's a great mom. She's a great friend. Oh, I'm glad you got a chance to talk to her. Yeah, she has been uh, just tremendous to my wife and I over the last uh, couple of years. And, and Oh, send her my love. I will. I will certainly do that. Well, look, I have uh, just annihilated an hour of your life, and I, you'll never get that back again. My apologies. Well, Drew, don't apologize because you have a special way of, of um, reaching people because I don't normally feel that free to be that free with people on the air because a lot of times they'll edit things out and you never know how it's going to air, and sometimes people can be unfair to you and not to put it down like the way it is. But I know your reputation, and it's and people have always told me about you, and I just felt free, and you made me feel very relaxed. I hope the the listening audience got something out of it. I love all of the um, opportunity you've given me to talk about. Uh, I hope I didn't bore anybody in no, my life, but no, thanks mate. for allowing me to share the truths in it at least so that uh, you know it's always on tape, and for, for my children or anybody else to listen to, there it is. Listen, Tony Orlando, it has been an absolute honor and privilege to speak with you and uh, to share a bit of your journey with our listeners here in Toronto. God bless you, Toronto. And, uh, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time there. They've always been good to me. Casino Rama, I don't know if to make a plug, but I go to work there all the time. And if I'm there again, please come, Drew. And uh, to everybody in Toronto, thank you for an amazing career that you've blessed me with. God bless you guys. Thank you, Tony. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tony Orlando on the Drew Marshall Show. Man, does not get any better than that, folks. Well, we'll take a short break and come back with lots more here on the Drew Marshall Show. Stay with us. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca.